visiting, let me tell you what we've been doing this fall. We've been going through the book of Exodus, but at a very high level, so we're not going chapter by chapter or verse by verse. And we're trying to ask the question of the book, who is the Lord? So basically, we want to look at the book of Exodus and ask it, what can you tell us about who God is? And to catch you up really quickly, remember the story is the children of Israel were enslaved by a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph. God sees and hears their cries, and he's going to do something about it. And he raises up Moses as the deliverer. And last week we saw, after 80 years, uh, Moses now finally meets God in the desert, in the burning bush. And now we pick up the story today where God, uh, God is finally sending Moses to encounter Pharaoh. So please give your attention to the reading of God's word. The scripture reading from the book of Exodus. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose I have raised you up, to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me, take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we ask that um, however we find ourselves in this room today, whether we're here because we're excited or whether we are here because someone invited us, whether we've known you a long time or we're just trying to figure you out. The one thing we all need to do is to encounter you and hear from you and your word. And today we ask, we beg that you would reveal yourself in such a way that our hearts and, uh, would be so transformed that we would be people to go out and live for you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what is the deal with these plagues and what it, what it, what are we going to learn about God by studying the plagues? That's exact, exactly what I want us to kind of tackle today. So if you go back to the beginning of the passage that was just read, 
notice what it says here. Moses says to Pharaoh in verse 1, Thus says the Lord, or literally, thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh says, Who is Yahweh? Who is he? I don't know him. That I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know Yahweh. And moreover, I will not let Israel go. This question, who is Yahweh? I don't know him. This is a question obviously Pharaoh is asking. Yet this is one that oftentimes we continue to ask of ourselves. And these plagues are meant to show us, to help us understand who God is. You know, in Exodus chapter 8, verse 10, it says, The plagues have come so that you may know there's no one like the Lord, no one like Yahweh our God. Or it says in Exodus 9, 14, For this time I will send all my plagues on you and yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know there's none like me in all the earth. So the Lord God wants all the Egyptians to know who he is. But again, this is not just a question for them. It's also a question for the people of Israel. Because many, many hundreds of years have passed between the death of Joseph at the end of Genesis and the birth of Moses here in Exodus. And these people, the people of God, have lived under the influence of Egyptian culture values and religions and don't forget the ancient near east was a militaristic context and the power of a god was often judged by the situation of his people so the israelites imagine them suffering decade after decade of brutal oppression they had to be wondering in their minds are the egyptian gods actually more powerful than our god because it sure looks like their lives are a lot better off than ours, which certainly seems so. So as these plagues are coming, it's not just for the people of Egypt, it's also for the people of God to understand something, who the Lord is. Because we're all asking the question, who is the Lord? So this morning, I want us to look at this passage under three headings. First, we want to see that God alone is king. God alone is king. And second, we also want to see God alone is wise. And lastly, we'll see that God alone is a merciful judge. So under those three headings, look at this passage. Because when you begin to look at the plagues, the idea is the plagues are telling us God alone. Yahweh, the Lord, alone is God, and there is no other. Every other God, every other belief structure you build your life on is fragile and precarious. And that's the framework in which we need to look at these plagues. And think about this. Have you ever given the thought, why ten plagues? Because it wasn't until the tenth one that the people are actually released. I mean, couldn't just God skip ahead, skip nine, let's just get to ten. You know, we're wasting our time here. Let's, let's get to the particular thing. Let's make it all happen. Why all these preliminaries, you know? And for that matter, why these particular plagues? 
Because you can be thinking, well, okay, uh, locust coming, all right, some gnats, what's the big deal? Frogs, okay, that's the second plague in Exodus 8, all right, that doesn't feel that menacing to me. Okay, darkness, why? And here's why uh, these things are all important, because these are not random manifestations of divine power. They're actually very carefully chosen by God for a particular purpose. Because you have to remember something. There were actually absolutely no atheists in ancient Egypt. Egypt was a wildly spiritually polytheistic place. Pharaoh said, I don't know Yahweh. I don't know this God of Israel. It doesn't mean he was an atheist. It just means I have my gods. We have a lot of gods here in Egypt. They seem to be doing a pretty good job. It's working out pretty well for us. But I don't know your God. Why should I worship him? See? Pharaoh in many ways 3,500 years ago is not too different from the average person who lives here in the Bay Area. And stay with me for a second because, you know, a couple weeks ago I took a lift to the airport. I was pretty happy. I got this guy, Caesar, five-star rating. You know, that's what you want when the guy comes, right? It pops up on your phone, and the guy was a really good driver. So his car was clean. He shows up on time. He helps me load my bag. He's courteous, and I got a guy who likes to talk, you know? And he asked me the usual questions. Are you going to SFO or San Jose? Just want to double check. Right, SFO. All right, which airline you put in Sometimes my passengers put in the wrong airline, so he wants to double check. This is good. And then he asked me, are you traveling for business? And I said, yes. And then the next question, what do you do? And if I'm in a good mood, I may say, well, I'll give you three guesses. <laughs> but if I'm tired, it's Monday morning, and I had a long Sunday. I was thinking I can end this conversation by saying I'm a Presbyterian minister. Because that usually ends a conversation. <laughs> but no, this guy was interested. Okay, I played that card. And he started telling me about how he drives up from Salinas to drive in the Bay Area. He meets a lot of different people, right? And after some back and forth, he said, you know, religion is really good as long as it helps you be a good person. That's what I tell my kids. I grew up Catholic, but I don't know if Christianity is really true but I'm glad it works for you and it helps the people who need it. So I was like, okay, uh, well, do you, do you just not believe in God? Did you have a bad experience in Catholicism? Do you ever feel like you need God? And after a little hemming and hawing, he said, you know, I'm not sure if God exists. I don't know if you can really know. I don't know if you can really believe it, but I'm just glad you believe it and it works for you and your congregation, it helps them. I'm not sure what I think about all of that. I'm like, you know, that's a fair conversation to have, right? And in many ways, maybe this is the conversation Pharaoh is having with Moses. I don't know Yahweh. Hey, he's working for you. That's awesome. <laughs> he's not working for me. My gods are powerful, okay? I have the Nile. I have the sun. I have the sky. In my Lyft driver's case, he's not sure what he believes. But the point is, why should I believe in your God? And if we go back to the plagues, the plagues are carefully chosen 
to answer Pharaoh's question. Who is Yahweh? I don't know this guy. They're carefully curated one by one to expose the emptiness of Egypt's entire religious system because they're aimed at things that are sacred to the people of Egypt. Think about the Nile, the first place, right, where it's being turned to blood. If you've ever been to Egypt, you know how sacred that river is, okay? It is personified and worshipped in ancient Israel, uh, I mean ancient Egypt. The name of this god is Hapi or Hapi. I don't even know how to pronounce it, okay? And it's the source of life and it's the source of prosperity. It's the ability to have crops, feed your animals, have water. And it is tainted and turned to blood at God's command. Exodus 7.20, maybe it's fitting, given it was the instrument of death of every Hebrew baby boy that was born in chapter 1. Do you remember that? And here is God striking it. I mean, what about the second plague, the frogs? I mean, why frogs? Maybe you like frogs. Maybe you think they're pretty gross, okay? But there was actually an Egyptian goddess, Hecht. H-E-Q-E-T, the goddess of fertility, okay? And this goddess was always depicted with a frog's head. Frog amulets were very common in ancient Egypt, and they represented fertility, good luck. And imagine a plague of frogs everywhere, in your pots, in your kitchen, I mean, in your bed. That's not a good sign. God is cursing that God. But jump ahead to the ninth plague, the most significant deity in Egypt. It was not Horus, it was actually Ra, the sun god, who daily won a victory over darkness. You don't think it's that big a deal. You're like, cool, it's like a giant solar eclipse for three days. This was terrifying to them. The greatest god in Egypt was actually made impotent. You know, Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, it says, And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. I love that description. Think about those words. It's a darkness you can feel. I mean, what does that mean? Yeah, one Hebrew scholar described it this way. It's the claustrophobic palpability of absolute darkness. It feels like you're closed in. Imagine it's so dark, your flashlight doesn't generate any light. And you're like, all right, it's dark, no big deal. But you know, you begin to understand something. You might think to yourself, well, darkness sounds better than being attacked by gnats, you know, which was the third plague. Or I'd rather sit in darkness than get boils on my skin because that sounds painful. Okay, and you'd be ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. That's the sixth plague. But darkness, that was terrifying. And Pharaoh is asking the question, who is this Yahweh? The one whom you sent, you represent, that has been sent. And you know what God is saying through each of these plagues? I alone am God. I alone am king. I mean, it's an 
kind of a very unpopular claim, right? This is the punchline of this narrative in this story. No matter who it is you worship, whether it's yourself, whether it is saying it's a multitude of gods, it's saying the promises it makes to you, these gods cannot deliver. And only one, the one true God, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God who has come to us in Jesus Christ, is the one who is the one true God. You know, maybe you're thinking, well, that sounds like just all ancient stuff, stuff you watch out of Marvel Universe. I've seen Moon Knight. You know, like, you're thinking, <laughs> all that stuff is there. But, you know, just stay with me for a second. But remember this, like, during the pandemic, do you remember that feeling when it felt like everything we built our lives on, thinking that it would recur daily, stopped? Couldn't go out anymore. Um, it's like, wait, we're scientifically advanced. How can one virus stop the whole world? Okay? Everything started falling apart. Our lives were disrupted in so many ways. And it made you ask the hard question, okay? What have we built our life on? And I remember, um, and I think I shared with the congregation a certain point during the pandemic. I don't know why. Maybe it was because I was bored. Maybe it was because I was depressed. All of the above. I picked up Camus, The Plague. And that was like the worst thing I could have done. Because after I read it, I was more depressed, you know? Because reading it, it, it helps you realize something. The story is really about how people shift as the world around them changes and how precarious our place is in this world. And God is saying through the plagues to the people of Egypt, to the Israelites as well, to us as well, when you begin to live and build your life on anything else but him, everything is always fragile. You know, Psalm 72, 11 says, May all kings fall down before him and all nations serve him. And Yahweh, the Lord God of Israel, the one who became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ, who died on the cross and rose again victorious over death. St. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because there can be only one God on the throne. It shows us that God alone is king. That's like the first thing you begin to understand through the plagues. The second thing is you begin to see that God alone is wise. And if you think about wisdom as skill in living, we talked about this in the beginning of the year when we did a little series on wisdom. It's showing us how wise God actually is. It doesn't mean no one else has wisdom, but God alone is the wisest. And this is a little hard to tease out here, but stay with me. But commentators across the centuries have pointed out something about the plagues. They are unwinding what God did at creation and bringing chaos into the world. The plagues are an unwinding of creation. 
And you see, remember in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, what God does, there's darkness, there's chaos, and he brings order. And Exodus chapter 7 through 10, the plagues are undoing and unraveling what God has actually put in place. This is part of the judgment. One theologian, Pete Enns, uh, we had a quote on the screen in the beginning of the service. He writes this in his commentary. The plagues are creation reversals. Animals harm rather than serve humanity. Light ceases. Darkness takes over. Water has become a source of death rather than life. Each plague is a reminder the Lord creates and rules over all nature. You know, Genesis chapter 1, 2, the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Darkness was over everything. And then the Spirit of God is hovering over this thing and brings light. He says, let there be light. He brings order. He brings peace. And what does this ninth plague actually do? Light is lost in the darkness. The earth is returning to this pre-creation chaos. And maybe you're saying, well, that's kind of interesting, then so what? It's showing you something. There's a fabric. There's a moral fabric to the universe. And when you go against God, there is upheaval and chaos. When you go against the grain of the universe and say, who is this Yahweh? Why do I have to listen to him? Why can't I just do whatever I want? My God seems to be working pretty well for me. What God is showing us through the plagues is that may work for a season. But a time is coming when your life will begin to unravel apart from the God of the scriptures. You know, and maybe this is one of those things that feels really hard because you fast forward a little bit. We get to Exodus chapter 20 when God gives his people his law. And he tells them, hey, here are my Ten Commandments. And you begin to understand part of giving the law for God is meant to be one in which he's telling us, I am the source of wisdom. I am the source of life. This, follow this path, and you're going to flourish. And I want that for you physically, emotionally, spiritually. And when you are in tune with me and what I'm about, you will flourish. You go against me and my purposes, you're going to experience chaos, disintegration. And this is part of what God is trying to say, even to Pharaoh. Because what happened to Pharaoh? Once they actually started going down this path of plague after plague after plague, you saw the locusts come destroy all the crops. That was agriculture. You saw their livestock die. Their water supply is hurt. I mean, you, you begin to understand people are afflicted physically. All of life begins to fall apart. The nation as a whole begins to fall apart because there is something that God is saying is when these things are all together they are meant to work in a way that brings flourishing and goodness. And apart from him and his wisdom, we find not life, but chaos, hardship. 
This is one of the reasons why it says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Maybe that's the second part of the question we should think about, and I think we'll hit that as we go on in the book of Exodus. But not only who is this Yahweh, but he's beginning to say, if you begin to know me and you begin to follow my ways, you will have life because God alone is wise. Now, before I move on to this last point, I got to talk about this little thing about, gosh, Pharaoh's heart. I, don't, I know some of you are wanting to ask this question because look at chapter 10, verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. And maybe you're trying to understand, okay, what, what is this? This is fascinating. So there's a hardening of Pharaoh's heart. And here in that verse, it talks about how the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. But this phrase, the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, actually takes place 20 times exactly in the text in Exodus. And you know what's interesting? 10 times it says, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the other 10 times it said, Pharaoh hardened his heart toward God. Now, as you're reading, you, you, you begin to say, okay, which is it? Was it that God is in control over Pharaoh and did God harden Pharaoh's heart? Or did Pharaoh have free will and he chose and he's responsible for what he did, so he became bitter and he the one that hardened his heart against God. And over and over again, the answer of the scriptures is this, yes. Both are absolutely true. That God is always in control, okay? You cannot thwart his will. That's why we can say with God, all things work out for his purposes. But God also is not responsible for evil in this world. We are responsible for what we do. Literally, both of those exist. And mathematically, I thought it's interesting, it's divided up exactly 10 and 10. So it, you can't weigh it one way or the other. But why is this coming up? And here's what I want us to focus on. Think about how Pharaoh has hardened his heart and the way this passage at the end of chapter 10 I have printed out for you goes. Because Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. And there is this anger, this bitterness that is being built up in the heart of Pharaoh himself. And here's what we need to understand about this. Look, when you begin to believe that you could have life apart from God and build it on your gods, on yourself, on your hard work, on your pedigree, on your looks, on your charm, whatever it may be. When you begin to say, God, I don't need you. I got this. You can believe in your God, but I'm not sure I'll build my life in my own way. What this is beginning to say is that's the thing you need to kind of watch out for with your own heart. Now, if you've been a Christian and you've been around the church for a long time, you may hear this and say, yeah, like sometimes I do feel like my heart is hard. Because maybe as you've come to know Christ, 
as you come to say, I want to embrace life in Christ, you feel like there's this tug that's going on in yourself? You know, maybe there's a part of you where it's like, well, there's this social part of my life that I want to do these things. Here's this private part. Here's this work part. Here's this part where I have all of this sexual desire. There's this part that's recreational. There's this, you know, religious. And you feel like all the time those things are always like kind of tugging at each other. And they're all sitting there trying to argue which one's going to come out uh, ahead. And you're going to make a decision. And you just want to add Jesus into the mix so that he becomes just one of the other voices in there, you know, to kind of get on a committee and occasionally maybe show up. And the whole idea is this. Look, when you invite Jesus in and Jesus kind of shows up in your life, you're saying, no, 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 this is not a group decision. Part of accepting Jesus is you are removing all of these other things that are trying to pull you away from Jesus himself. And you begin to say, God, I know who you are. I know what you've done for me. I don't want to ask the question, who is the Lord? that I should obey you. But that question should be answered through the person of Jesus. And you begin to say, Jesus, because of what you've done, because who you've revealed yourself to be, the God who loves, the God who sacrifices, the God who said, I will give everything so you can have life. Help me to grow to trust in you. Even when that feels very uncomfortable. Even when that feels like it's going against the things I want in that moment. You know, um, we had a wedding here yesterday. So if I'm a little, like, not fully mentally engaged, it's because I had such a good time at this wedding and party, I didn't have enough time to prep. But, you know, the, the couple chose a passage out of 1 Corinthians 13 as one of the passages to be read. And I think... It, it's one of those beautiful passages. And there's a line in there I, keep, I always keep going back to. It's, you know, love does not insist on its own way. And um, if you reflect on that, my goodness. Like, part of what it means to grow as a person who knows how to love is we don't demand our own way. And the only way you can begin to be a person like that, whether it's in your marriage or in your friendships or as a roommate, is because you begin to understand Jesus didn't insist on his own way. Rather, he was willing to give himself up in order that you would have life. And you, when you begin to see and let that take root in your own heart, gosh, things begin to change. You begin to say, Lord, you are king. You are the one who should be worshipped. You are the one who is wise. I, I, I need to trust you and help me to move away from all these other things. And now it's not I have to obey you. I want to obey you. It's this compelling reason to say, I want to trust you. And maybe this leads us to the third point, which is God alone is a merciful judge. This is one of the reasons why we should trust him. You know, and I got this from Tim Keller, and we had a quote that's in the bulletin as well. But he points out that all of these plagues were not just some punishment to Pharaoh. Yes, they are a judgment of evil and oppression and slavery. 
but it actually leads to salvation, not only for the people of Israel, but actually it becomes a means to bring salvation to the world. Because they were a means to bring relief to the people. And it says in Exodus 9.14, he wants the whole world to know who he is, and he says, so that you may know there is none like me in all the earth. And chapter 9, verse 16, but for this purpose I have raised you up to show you my power, so that my name may be proclaimed not just in Egypt, but in all the earth. You know, in the Old Testament, this story of the Exodus becomes the central narrative by which you begin to understand salvation. And you begin to realize this was not just meant for one people group or one nation, but it's this unfolding story of God to tell all of us that we are oppressed by something far worse than physical slavery. A slavery that is far deeper, and that's the one to sin itself. And just as God has used these plagues to save the people of Israel out of Egypt, he is telling us that one day, the people who receive this judgment, he also wants them to experience new life. Because if God wanted to crush the Egyptians, he could have done that in a finger snap. That's what he says in Exodus 9.15. Do you see, for by now, I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, and you would have been cut off from the earth. He said, I could have done that. If I wanted to just punish you, I could have totally done this. But you know, fast forward a little bit, just to the uh, middle of the Old Testament, and Isaiah chapter 19 says some really interesting and mind-blowing things about the people of Israel, Egypt. He says, one day, Egypt is going to cry out to the Lord. And he will send them a savior and defender. Isaiah 19, 20. And verse 21 says, And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and worship with sacrifice and offering, and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. Whoa, wait a second. These are the hated enemies of the people of God. What do you mean they are now going to be the people of God? I mean, this is one of these remarkable turns in the story. They are going to be part of God's people. They are going to see Yahweh. And they're going to say, we're not worshiping the Nile God. We're not worshiping the frog God. We're not worshiping Ra or Horus or anybody else. But they will see God alone deserves worship because he alone brings salvation through judgment. This is a unique thing about the God of the scriptures. That God brings salvation, not apart from judgment, but through judgment. And think about this. Hundreds of years after the plague in Exodus 10 that brought darkness. Once again, there was darkness over the face of the earth on a Friday afternoon. We call it Good Friday. The gospel says, and when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Imagine that, darkness from noon till 3 p.m. 
And do you remember what happened when Jesus was crucified? The earth shook, the rocks split open, even the tombs were open. I mean, what, what was that about? It's like Exodus 7 to 12. Chaos is coming into the world, right? In Exodus, the plagues came down on the enemies of God's people. But you know what happens on the cross? The judgment of God comes down on one person. Jesus, the Son of God, the righteous one, whom all of the judgment humanity deserved fell on him. You know the plagues that were sent to Pharaoh, that and a whole lot more were sent to Jesus himself. And why? Why? In order to save. You know, God alone, Yahweh alone, is a merciful judge. He alone is the one that shows us where life comes from. And you begin to wonder, well, how do we know this is the same God? You know, in John chapter 14, Philip begins to ask Jesus, you know what, okay, here's what I want to know. Jesus, can you show us the Father? Can you show us the Father? And here's what Jesus says. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Jesus is saying the way you become to know Yahweh himself is to see and know him. Because he alone is king. He alone is wise. He alone is merciful judge. He was the maker who was unmade in order that you and I would be remade and be called children of God. This is a God who invites us to come and to worship him. Let's go to him in prayer. Father in heaven, um, you are the almighty God who has come to us with compassion, with love, with an invitation to experience your mercy, your mercy and your forgiveness. For you have sent your son to receive all of the judgment we deserve. And we ask that that fact alone would so light up our hearts and minds that we would begin to see you alone are king, you alone are wise, and that our lives would be shaped in such a way to go out and live for you. Help us to turn away from all of the idols that we build our lives on. Help us to turn away from ourselves as being the source that we feel we can trust and build all of ourselves upon you. And this can't happen upon your, apart from your grace, and we ask that you would send your spirit here today so that that could happen. And we ask these things in your son's precious name. Amen.